welcome to this podcast sponsored by the Open University Graduate School. My name is Catherine Langford and I'm studying a PhD at the Open University. I'm researching how secondary school students develop an understanding of physics. I'm particularly interested in the concepts that students find the most difficult to understand, such as electricity, forces and radioactivity. I'm fascinated by how people learn, so for this podcast episode I'm going to tell you about a few common misconceptions about learning. I should say that the content of this podcast represents mine and my contributors' views. Let's jump right in with the first topic I want to talk about. A common misconception about learning is that intelligence is fixed. While it's true that your genes play a large part in determining how intelligent you are, they don't determine it altogether. Nurture is also important. Malcolm Gladwell popularised the 10,000-hour rule in his best-selling book Outliers. He argued that research demonstrates that it takes around 10,000 hours of practice, or about 10 years, to become an expert at something like music or chess. Now, the 10,000-hour rule has received some criticism as being an oversimplification. Lots of different factors are involved, like that some people learn faster than others, and not every type of practice leads to increased ability. While it's not enough to simply put in 10,000 hours in order to become an expert, the point that I'm trying to make is that although some people may start off with more natural ability than others, they still need to put in effort in order to become an expert. The trouble with thinking that intelligence is fixed and purely determined by genetics is that then people tend to avoid challenges where they might not succeed. They may not want to attempt a difficult task, as if they fail, it will prove that they are not clever enough to do it and potentially make them feel incompetent. Whereas if they think of intelligence as not being fixed, then they can attempt something difficult and it doesn't matter as much if they fail, as it still potentially is helping them to improve and they can learn from their mistakes. Research shows that students who think intelligence isn't fixed perform better than students who think that it is fixed. It has been suggested that it's also important to praise children for how hard they are working rather than just for being clever so that they make that connection between working hard and doing well. It's difficult to completely separate out how much something is determined by genetics or how much is determined by the environment because of the way nature and nurture interact. A great example of this is the fight or flight instinct. You're walking down the road and you hear a noise in the bushes beside you and it triggers a physiological reaction such as rapid heart rate and heavy breathing. It's an instinct, it's innate, it's something that you're born with. But it's triggered by the environment. Nature and nurture interact together. Dickens and Flynn suggest that genes can cause people to seek out different environments. They give the example of a boy who has inherited slightly better than average genes that give him an advantage when playing basketball, such as being tall. Perhaps he also has a father who likes basketball and plays it with him a lot. This causes the boy to improve. He gets picked for teams which makes him feel good, so he practices more and improves still further. Dickens and Flynn say that the genetic advantage itself may be rather small, but through the interplay between ability and environment, the advantage can develop into something much greater. And I think that this might be true for students studying physics. For my PhD, I've done preliminary interviews with six secondary school physics teachers, where I ask them things like which physics topics students find the most difficult and what common misconceptions they have. Several of the teachers talked about how some students are naturally good at physics. Physics just clicks for them. They understand it really easily. Now, it's not clear where that ability comes from. It could be that they have genes that make them naturally good at physics, but it could also be that there are some environmental influences, such as being encouraged by their parents. There are lots of potential influences. 
But what I found really interesting while interviewing teachers was that they talked about more than just innate intelligence that makes physics easy for some students to understand. The students seem to have a drive to understand physics. They enjoy it. They'll read books about it in their free time and find their teachers after class in order to ask questions. They're putting a lot of time and effort into being good at physics because they enjoy it and find it interesting. I think that it may be a case of what Dickens and Flynn described, that these students may have a relatively small initial advantage when it comes to learning physics, which is then magnified as the students seek out particular environments. Students learn at different rates, which means that slower learners may need to work harder to catch up with faster learners. But when I spoke to physics teachers, I had the impression that this wasn't happening. The faster learners were the ones who were also putting in the most effort. So not only do these students find physics easy, but they're spending more time reading and increasing their background knowledge, so it's getting even easier for them to learn what they're being taught in class. In fact, often these students already know what they're being taught and have progressed onto more advanced concepts. The more you know about a topic, then the easier it is to take in new information about it. Research has demonstrated that experts learn new information about their topic of expertise better than novices. For example, chess masters learn new information about chess better than chess novices. And a study by Van Overscheld and Healy found that participants' recall of new facts was better for concepts that were associated with five previously known facts, rather than just one previously known fact. Basically, the greater your existing knowledge, the more potential links there are with new information which makes it easier to learn. The more you know about a topic, the easier it is to learn new information about it. It's sort of like a jigsaw puzzle. The more of the picture you have already assembled, the easier it is to put in new pieces of the puzzle. So it's easier for students with more knowledge to learn faster. This means that the gap between lower ability students and higher ability students is likely to increase. What's clear from speaking to physics teachers is that some students love physics while others hate it. It's difficult to say where that enjoyment comes from, whether it's something innate or if it's because their parents have encouraged them or what. It's clear that enjoyment is really important and that it's something that teachers find difficult to manufacture in their students. Which leads me on to the next topic I want to talk about, the importance of fun in learning. It's often assumed that serious or difficult topics can't be fun, or that fun can be used as a reward after you've done the hard work rather than as part of the learning process itself. But actually, it seems that fun can be an important part of learning. The teachers I spoke to clearly go to great lengths to make physics fun for their students. It was apparent that they were aware of a link between students enjoying a subject and their motivation to learn about it. One of the teachers said that if the class are bored stiff by what you're doing, nothing is going in. So number one, they've got to enjoy what they're doing and then it follows that they will make the mental effort to be interested enough to actually learn it. And the practical work helps hugely in that respect. Even though the teachers I spoke to are very pressed for time and have lots of content to cover and not enough time to teach it in, they still make time in their lessons for fun activities. And they do that in lots of different ways, like demonstrations, experiments and videos. Several of the teachers talked about students assuming that physics is too hard for them and that students have given up before they even enter the classroom as they think there's no point in trying. So part of the purpose of these exercises seems to not only be useful as a teaching tool to help students understand, but to make physics more enjoyable and help students get over having a mental block about physics. 
I happened to meet Emily Dowd as well at an Open University graduate school coffee morning. Emily is also a PhD student. She is researching children's perspectives of fun in order to help understand how we can engage with fun for the purposes of learning. I was fascinated by Emily's research as it really resonates with what my teachers have said so far, so I asked her to talk to me for this podcast. Emily is part of the Rumpus Research Group at the Open University, and a key area of their research is how fun relates to learning and education. So things like, is learning easier and more enduring when you're having fun? Or is fun simply a distraction? I haven't got time to play the whole of the interview with Emily, so here are a few extracts beginning with the difficulties of introducing fun into the classroom. Introducing fun to the classroom isn't as simple as, let's say, bringing a board game into into the room or making a joke. Fun means different things to different people. We're really, the research is really clear on that. So... Would you say that what teachers think is fun is the same thing as what students think is fun? I think there's probably as much variety amongst students about what they think fun is as there is amongst teachers about what they think fun is. One thing that's interesting is I think that there's a proven disconnect about what teachers believe their students are experiencing in the classroom what teachers might think is fun to students might not necessarily actually be fun to students. And there's also this question of, you know, what's the relationship of if the teacher themselves is having fun, if they're focused on their own fun, what impact does that have? You know, because there's two ways to go about it in terms of introducing fun in the classroom. You could um, focus on what you think your students will enjoy, or you could focus on what you yourself enjoy. And I think speaking on a personal level we've all had teachers who've loved their subject and somehow that that love is contagious um so maybe that's going to be part of what we find let's see do students ever think that fun is a waste of time that's a really great question older students i think have um expressed concern in the research that I've seen older students have expressed concern that fun can be disruptive and there's fears as well that um that what is fun for some people in the classroom isn't fun for everybody. So it can be, as much as it can be something that creates increased inclusivity, it can also be excluding in the way that if not everyone experiences whatever's happening as fun, then what you're doing is you're creating um, you're, you're creating groups within the classroom that is not going to be helpful to, to learning at all. So, um, you know, I think, I think like all research questions, it's, really important to bear in mind that there's probably going to be positives and negative implications to fun, um, light and dark sides to it, and it's something that both those sides are important and there'll be a spectrum in between as well. So do you think that students can find difficult topics fun? I mean, are easy topics more fun or can students enjoy topics that they find hard? It's consistently um, apparent that students can find hard, perceived hard subjects fun. There's one paper with uh, primary school children where um, even English grammar can be fun. So (laughs) (laughs) So I don't know if you might think maybe English grammar isn't as hard as physics, but to me it is. So um, so (laughs) it's, um, yeah, it's really interesting because it's not as simple as, it's not 
as simple as fun is closely connected to ease. There's much more to it than that. So there's actually a spectrum of opinion on this question. Um, it's not, it, people are divided. Many believe that a focus on fun is detrimental to studying topics perceived to be hard. Um, my colleagues at Rumpus, Ali Akkad and Kieran Sheehy, um, have recently hypothesized that this might have something to do with individual beliefs about learning, shaping how learners and teachers then think about the idea of fun. That said, many, many learners and teachers believe happiness and fun are important to effective learning. But even within the group who advocate for the place of fun in the classroom, people's ideas of the role of fun, so what it's there for, are different. For some, it's a tool, right, that makes learning easier, that unburdens the, the work of learning. Um, for others, it helps engaging students. I think you saw that with your conversations with teachers. And mm, for definitely. others, it's about building positive relationships, right? Mm. Um, what's clear is that there are cultural differences between, um, between countries and their ideas of fun. Um, for example, Kieran Sheehy is doing work in Indonesia, and there, fun is considered an integral part of learning. Whereas in England and Ireland, it seems very much that fun is considered um, something you do after learning, after the hard work, you can have fun as a reward. So why then do you think that it's important to research fun? So at a very simple level, I just think um, it's important because children and learners just use the word fun so much in research data sets. And yet there's been so little corresponding research into the concept. For example, you will find fun if you do a search on, in Google, in papers, Google Scholar or library search, um, you'll find fun crop up when participants are quoted talking about their learning, but then it's not explored in the discussion or findings. Um, so that in itself I find interesting. Why is that idea of fun sometimes dismissed as a valuable research topic? Why do we take its meaning for granted? And what do research participants actually mean when they use the word fun? Secondly, the reason I think it's important is because it seems to matter to children, right? There's been a lot of focus on the idea of play and the importance of play. And while play and fun are often in close proximity, in the UK context, they don't mean the same thing. For example, during my master's research, I invited children, um, nine and 10 year olds, to make observations of their classroom. I think influenced by their science topics, they actually recorded their ob observations in tables listed under good behavior and bad behavior, which is really interesting. Um, and what happened was that Descriptions of play, for example, playing with rubbers, playing with blue tack or rocking on chairs were always listed under bad classroom behavior, while descriptions using fun were always listed under good classroom behavior. So what's happening there? I'm hoping my research will shed some light on, on, on that question. And then finally, um, I think something that we've both discussed in the past is that the elements that seem to be related to fun, so the the kind of themes that come up in the research, questions of engagement, of motivation, freedom, safety, and social bonding. These might help um, us create conditions for learning that simply work better for more people. So there, there are many big equity challenges for education today. Maybe understanding fun can help make education more equitable, whoever and wherever you are. Let's see what happens.
there's a danger that by promoting fun as something useful to learning, it's it could get co-opted and instrumentalized in a way that robs it of its magic and then doesn't work, right? So imagine, mm. you know, putting years into finding that research, that fun is useful in learning, right? And and putting together all these initiatives to get fun into the classroom and then all backfiring. And I'm sure all your teachers have examples where they've put a lot of work into something fun and it just didn't click for whatever reason with their students. And so I think, um, I think that's why this research is important because we know fun is important to students, but we don't quite understand why. And we definitely don't understand it well enough to be able to control and manipulate fun in a way that is going to be, you know, lead to consistently positive learning outcomes for everyone. Right. So I think that's really, really interesting. So do you think that doing further research can help with that? Yeah, I think whether we, um, whatever we can find, there's so little research about fun, um, really, that whatever we can find will help us have a better understanding and um, and hopefully it will also shed some light about what learning means too. I agree with Emily that researching the role of fun in learning is important. For example, a teacher I interviewed said that she showed students a video that explained some physics concepts and that the students were laughing at the old technology like a corded phone attached to the wall. This was good in that it helped students enjoy the lesson, but the teacher was also afraid that for some of the students it was being a distraction, as the students were more interested in laughing at the old technology rather than learning about the science concepts that they were supposed to be learning about. It can be difficult to predict how students will react in a lesson. So research can help ensure that learning is an optimal experience for as many students as possible. If you're interested in finding out more about the role of fun in learning, then Emily and I have written a blog article together for the European Educational Research Association. I'll add a link to it in the podcast description. Speaking to Emily got me thinking about the role of fun as a PhD student. If you're a research student at the Open University, then I would encourage you to join in with some of the graduate school events, like the online coffee morning where I met Emily as even though many of the events are just for fun, they've been very useful for networking. It's led to me swapping resources with other students, such as useful textbook chapters. Networking is so important for researchers. Dr Liz Fitzgerald is another researcher who I've met at the Open University. I was told about her research by one of my supervisors, and I couldn't resist asking her to speak to me for this podcast. Liz has done research into learning styles, which is something I've heard a lot about and it's probably something that you've come across too. It's a popular belief that learning styles are useful and effective for personalised learning when this isn't actually supported by scientific research. Personally, what I find so interesting about Liz's research is that she went into researching learning styles expecting them to be a useful tool, and this wasn't the case, so now Liz has moved on to looking at other methods of personalising learning. Again, I don't have time to play the whole interview with Liz, so here are some edited extracts, beginning with Liz explaining what learning styles are. Okay, so learning styles are quite well known, uh, well, certainly well talked about. They tend to be the preferences of an individual in a particular learning situation. So what we think about is a, a deep-seated inclination to do something in a specific way. 
it's not necessarily context-based and you can apply it to many different subjects or tasks. So one of the most well-known learning styles is about um, visual versus verbal. So students may prefer to receive information in a primarily visual form compared to a verbal representation. Uh, there's also things like VAK, visual auditory kinesthetic. It's a well-known learning style, but there's a whole wide variety of others. Um, I think in my PhD thesis, I found over 100. Are learning styles useful for effective personalised learning? In a word, no. <laughs> so I, I'd love them to be, you know, having been, you know, an educator for, for most of my working life, I, you know, I would love to be able to say yes. And that was really why I started researching this. But the issue is there that, you know, they're actually very contentious. You know, many psychologists and neuroscientists have questioned the scientific basis of learning styles and also the theories upon which they're based. The problem is many learning style models, the sort of the questionnaires that you fill out, don't actually measure what they're intended to. And they often have low internal reliability and validity. So they don't, you know, like I say, they don't really measure what they say they do. The questions they ask, which are meant to, to connect with each other, don't always do that very well. However, it's a very, uh, it's a very seductive thing. People like being stereotyped. We all like doing that sort of that magazine article, you know, are you A, B, C or D? We like being pigeonholed. The temporal stability of learning styles, so about how much they change over time, is also unknown. We don't know when they change, we don't know um, how they change or how often they change, but from my work I've found that they do change, they can, they can change even within the space of a day, and it can also depend on the topics being studied or what the learning activities are. So there are many things around uh, other aspects to do with learning, things like motivation, uh, working memory capacity, personality traits the, that can affect learners, um, things like emotional parameters and learner and teacher behaviours. And the process of learning itself is so complex. Um, there are a large interplay of factors. Anyone that's been a teacher or has tried to teach you know, groups of people this would know very well. So, you know, for a lot of teachers, things like socioeconomic background can make a difference. Um, if you're looking at teaching in maybe rural or urban areas, for instance, especially in, you know, countries like Africa, for instance, things like the amount of time put into learning or available for learning, the effort, say the, the health of the learner, um, other distractions related to personal or social activities or, or commitments. There's a huge complexity around learning that you know learning styles you can't just go in and say oh if you get the right learning style it's automatically going to make a difference it, it's not well tell me about your research then because you started by doing your phd in learning styles didn't you i did yes so um so yeah so uh, you know I, I came into this having been a secondary school teacher um and having seen very clearly you know i on the ground if you like the you know how different kids do learn differently and so, yes, I did my PhD on looking at learning styles. I, I compared learning styles um, both at university students and also with um, children at primary school, um, the, the sort of the top end of primary school, sort of uh, years five and six, which are about age nine to ten. And what I found actually was that, you know, the, the intervention I was bringing, although they loved, you know, working with the computer and, and my work is very much, you know, grounded in, in TEL and technology enhanced learning. They loved all of that, um, but it didn't make a difference in terms of the end result. So 
those that matched their learning style with the learning environment. Um, there wasn't any difference from those that, that had a mismatched environment. Um, so overall, the, you know, it, it was it was a shame in a way. And, you know, because as a as a teacher, I wanted to find something that would help, that would make a positive difference. Um, and there was no difference. You know, I think it's, it's really sort of engaged this healthy scepticism in me about you know, the things we do with computers don't always make a difference. And you have to look carefully at the needs of your learners to sort of to see actually what difference you can make. And so that's really inspired me to go forward. And, you know, I work very much sort of my areas about digital practice. I've worked a lot with with many different educators just really to see how the technology they use, how it works, how and why it makes a difference or not. And that's that's really what's inspired me going forward. Oh, excellent. That's really interesting. So you talked about personalised learning. Why is personalised learning important? So personalised learning is not new. Um, so anyone that's been a teacher would know that this has been around, you know, almost forever. You know, if you've got good teachers, they've often realised that learning to a certain extent does need to be personalised. Um, some would argue that all learning needs to be personalised for learners to engage with it effectively. Um, and so good teachers know that they need to explain things differently to different learners and you know, based on learners' current knowledge, their understanding of the world. And we've seen this from school already looking at, say, differentiated learning materials, or if you like, streaming of school pupils into different learning sets based on ability. Um, these are you know, very much uh, established norms. And we know from the literature, um, say, especially looking at personalization in TEL, um, we know that personalization can increase motivation in learners. We know it can increase learner empowerment or the perception of that and improve attitudes to learning. Um, although, you know, <laughs> we need to remember that student satisfaction scores and the increased student satisfaction from personalization, that doesn't necessarily correlate with their academic performance. It's a little bit of a black box. You know, they might really enjoy a course, but not do that well at it, or they might not enjoy it at all, but actually, you know, do really well. But there is this potential for personalization to contribute to better results. That's, you know, that's that's why we know it's important. Um, and then at the macro level, the sort of institution level, um, we know that the importance, you know, the importance of personalization can help to tackle underachievement in education. And it potentially can raise standards through uh, it, that's in, in compulsory education. Um, and it, it's also, you know, people talk about that, you know, it, it's not just about engaging pupils effectively, but, you know, we it's a matter of sort of almost like moral purpose and social justice to make sure that we're doing the, the absolute best for our learners. So if learning styles aren't that effective, then what methods are useful for personalised sure. learning? So we can look at, um, I think, three main aspects. One is learner effectiveness, one is teacher effectiveness, and then there's this meta-learning, the sort of learning about learning. So if we look at learning effectiveness, so you can do um, sort of personalised for this through, say, offering um, links to learning opportunities or curricula that relate to students in formal interests or broader learning goals. Um, and if you've got, let's say, a, a wider curriculum provision and, and crucially learner choice, if you've got that in there. So, you know, having some options where they can choose is a very powerful thing. If you can try and support personalised modes of study. So if you can mix face to face and online learning, say part time or full time, obviously this isn't always 
possible in in compulsory education um potentially you know different online start times the the ou is looking at this as an aspect of personalization where you know can you start different modules at different times in the year and and this can, again can be quite powerful so if you can have um blended sort of learning have adaptive interactive learning environments having learning on the go if you can use mobile devices to provide these seamless continuous contexts for learning um, and maybe sort of blurring the line between formal and informal learning, depending on the learner's preferences and goals. This can all help to say to build learner effectiveness. You can also have different forms of assessment um, to provide feedback to the learner about their learning. And again, you can do this through a number of uh, adaptive systems. So, you know, say some sorts of learning analytics can do this. So that's really looking at learner effectiveness. In terms of teacher effectiveness now, you know, there are issues for teachers in that, you know, a lot of teacher activities tend to focus around tasks, the resources have got the time, the pacing, the social structure, the, the role of the teacher. Um, but one thing again you can do is sort of, if we talk about this learner feedback, which we, which we already know from Hattie's work is, is a very, um, you know, it's got a large effect, it's very powerful in terms of helping learning. If you can have some sort of personalized formative learner feedback, say through, you know, something that can help through learning analytics, then that can help teachers focus on the higher level support in the commentary. Um, you could have assessments made available for learners um, when they or the teachers feel they're ready for them. They can suggest next steps be taken by the learners. You can have almost like adaptive assessment. Um, and from that, you can have personalized recommendations. Um, to support the learner based on their stated goal. Um, and that can be a way of, you know, not sidestepping what the teacher does, but to give them additional support so that, that you know, so, so they're not having to, to deal with a huge amount of work uh, if some of it can be done by, by the system. And then the last thing I mentioned was about meta-learning. And this is something I've already mentioned about in terms of this, this reflection and discussion around what learning is. So personalised technology-enhanced learning can make that entry into learning much more engaging, interactive and personally relevant, whether the learners are young or more mature students with a professional career uh, behind them or, or as part of what they're trying to do for the learning. Um, I think all these things add up to, you know, to being um, what's effective in terms of how we can make learning better. Even though research like Liz's demonstrates that using learning styles isn't effective, learning styles still remain a popular model of personalised learning. This shows why it is so important for us to sometimes reassess what we know and how we know it. I think the same is true for something I've come across during my PhD research. A lot of research in my area of study has been criticised as it simply lists what common misconceptions students have. It seems quite intuitive that if a student has a misconception, then we can address it by giving them the correct information. However, teachers will tell you that once a student has a misconception, it's very difficult to get rid of it. And research has found that interventions which tackle misconceptions head on aren't very effective. So knowing what misconceptions students have isn't enough. We need to research why they have them and how to correct them. Part of the trouble is that students can simply reject information given to them by their teachers. For example, one of the teachers I interviewed said that her students already have ideas about electricity from things like charging their phones. Then when she's teaching them about how electricity works in class, and it's different from their ideas about electricity, some of the students just go, no, I don't like that, that's not how it works. 
It's similar to people who refuse to believe in climate change despite the overwhelming evidence. It's called motivated reasoning. People rationalise their views by cherry-picking the evidence that fits their theory and discounting the evidence that doesn't. When teachers present students with evidence that contradicts the way the student thinks, the student may simply reject the evidence rather than change their theory. Research that simply lists what common misconceptions students have often treats students' misconceptions as isolated islands of incorrect information. But actually, students' misconceptions are often connected. For example, a student might think that there is no gravity on the moon, or on other planets, or underground, or that if you place a rock in a vacuum chamber and remove all the air, that the rock will start to float. We might be able to trace all of those misconceptions back to the root cause that the student incorrectly thinks that gravity is caused by air pressure and the weight of air pushing down, and that they believe that if there is no air, then there can be no gravity. If we can correct that mistaken belief so that students understand that gravity is a force of attraction between two objects that increases with the object's mass and decreases with the distance between them, then hopefully this will have a domino effect and correct the related misconceptions without us having to correct each misconception individually. For example, the student may potentially work out for themselves that there is gravity on the moon, but it's not as strong as on Earth as the moon has a smaller mass than Earth. For my research, I'm hoping to look at how students' ideas and misconceptions interconnect and hopefully find the key concepts which students need to understand to address the root causes of their misconceptions. Thank you for listening to this podcast. If you take anything away from this episode, then let it be that intelligence isn't fixed, that fun can be an important part of the learning process, that there are more effective methods of personalising learning than using learning styles, and that correcting misconceptions is often far more complicated than you might think. If you'd like to know more, then I'll leave details of a few interesting resources in the podcast description. I hope you've enjoyed this episode.